I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The new EU Confidential podcast gets started right after this. A message from ExxonMobil. Carbon capture technologies are critical for lowering global CO2 emissions. As a leader in the field, ExxonMobil is working on ways to make carbon capture technology scalable, more efficient and more affordable, so it can be deployed at industrial sites worldwide. These include using fuel cells that could capture up to 90% of the CO2 from large industrial sites and even capturing CO2 directly from the air. Learn more about the potential of carbon capture at energyfactor.eu. Let us be in no doubt of what the alternative is. The alternative is no deal. And that is not an outcome we want. It is not an outcome we seek at all. But let me tell you, my friends, it is an outcome for which we Welcome to the new EU Confidential Podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, and you just heard once again from Boris Johnson. This time he was making a speech about his new Brexit proposal, which we'll get to later in the podcast. We've got a busy week in European politics to talk about, and that doesn't just mean Brexit, which, as we know, means Brexit. It also means the confirmation hearings for new European commissioners here in Brussels. And we'll also talk transatlantic relations. To help guide us through it, we have Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Bonjour. Annabelle Dixon in London. Hi, Annabelle. Hello. And joining us live, stateside, Matt Karnichnik. Matt, where exactly are you? I'm actually at SeaTac Airport in Seattle. I've snuck into the Japan Airlines lounge in order to have a uh, quiet place to to record this. So I hope, uh, hope I don't get thrown out in the midst of our discussion. Uh, we hope the same. OK, well, we'll get to why you're there uh, a bit later. But let's kick off with Brexit. That's one of the pieces of breaking news we've got uh, this afternoon. Boris Johnson presenting a new plan for a deal. Annabel, is it possible to fill us in on what the substance of the deal or the proposal is? So I've just come from a briefing where these proposals were set out, which are going to Jean-Claude Juncker in a letter this afternoon. And effectively, the plan is for Northern Ireland to stay in the European single market for goods, but to leave the customs union. And the big key difference between what's come before is this idea that the Northern Ireland Assembly, so that's that the Northern Ireland government, which is directly elected by the people of Northern Ireland, would get to approve the arrangements first and then vote every four years on keeping them. The only issue with that is that the Northern Ireland Assembly um, actually collapsed a couple of years ago and isn't actually up and running at the moment. But effectively, the idea is this effective single market for goods, but leaving the customs union. And the key to that is consent. That's the big word. This idea that Northern Ireland 
gets to approve it. Do we think this is kind of squared on, on the UK side that the DUP would would be okay with this? I've been in Manchester for the last few days at the Conservative Party conference and it was very striking that the, the Democratic Unionist Party, those confidence and supply partners of the Prime Minister were out in force. And Arlene Foster, the leader of the DUP and Prime Minister Boris Johnson, had this sort of love-in on Tuesday night at the DUP reception. So party conferences are all about these champagne receptions or actually usually warm white wine. Um, So the DUP one on Tuesday night, there were these extraordinary scenes where everyone was sort of chanting, Boris, Boris, Boris. And it, it was very clear... And and the DUP have made it very clear over the last few days that they are on board with this plan. Okay, so we're just in the process of getting European reaction right now as we record. Anything initial from Paris or Berlin? Matt, everybody reckons this is going to come down to Berlin in the end, or, or a lot of people do. I know you're far away from there this week, but any sense of how this is going to go down with, with Chancellor Merkel, with the Germans? Well, I think it'll actually come down to Ireland and to how this is received in Dublin. And, you know, up to now, the, the Germans have always deferred to Dublin on these issues involving the border. And I think that's going to be Merkel's first call today will be to Leo Varadkar and see, you know, what he has to say about it, because, you know, at the end of the day, they're going to be the ones who, who live with, with the consequences this does look at first glance like a way to possibly square the circle here. But anytime you start talking about borders and this type of thing, which effectively this this would be, um, it, it gets very complicated there. So I, I, and the initial reaction I've heard here from Dublin has not been particularly positive. So I think the Germans are going to be looking very closely at that. And there is a broader European interest as well in terms of preserving the single market and you know, how this all fits in with the customs union, which the European Union has been really focused on as well. Annabelle, I think you wanted to come in. There are still some big questions, which I think European leaders are going to ask in in the coming days. The first one, I think, is about customs. Because the UK is going to leave the customs union, there are going to be new customs checks. And Boris Johnson has been saying over the last couple of days very clearly they're not going to be on or near the border. Um, But the question for European leaders is going to be exactly what these customs checks look like. And I think that's going to be a big question in the coming days. I've been scouring the documents since they were released and there's very little detail about exactly how that would work. So I think that's, that's going to be one big sticking point for European leaders. And the second big question is over the Northern Ireland Assembly, which, as I said, hasn't been sitting. What happens if it's not sitting is is the first big question. And the second question is what happens if the Assembly refuses to endorse this particular plan? So I, I think those those are two big pending questions that are going to be sort of hammered out in in the coming days and weeks. Okay, Reem? And I was also struck by sort of maybe this is sort of the Boris Johnson sort of cavalier way, but he, he wanted to make it sound like it, it was an essentially, he said it's an, it's an essentially technical discussion on the exact nature of future customs checks as if to kind of undermine or make it sound like it's not such a big deal and actually the EU27 are putting up hurdles that are just unnecessary. A, it doesn't sound like just a technical discussion 
and it sounds like a very substantive discussion when it comes to, you know, the integrity of the single market, but also the Good Friday Agreement. And second, it sounds like a bit of preemptive blaming uh, tactic in, you know, against the EU in case we do end up with a no deal. Right. And I think certainly from the the European perspective here, there is a sense that one of the things in the build up to this big European Council summit that we have in a couple of weeks is obviously positioning to try and blame the other side, right? Nobody wants to take responsibility for a no-deal Brexit. And in Boris Johnson's case, he also doesn't want to appear in any way that he's looking for an extension. Even if he is finally forced to do that, he's not going to be wanting to make that look like that's something he's done willingly. He's going to want to blame the others in UK politics, basically the kind of, if you like, the the majority in Parliament that's forced him into that position, right? So on both the domestic and the international side, he wants at least to make it look like he's done everything possible to get a deal and leave on the 31st. Whether that's the case or not, of course, another another question. Um, shall we move on to the other side of, of the Atlantic? And Matt, tell us a little bit about what you have been doing in the US. So I've been here for a couple of days, really just to talk about German-American relations uh, and the transatlantic relationship. And it's been quite interesting just to hear Americans' perspectives on this. I started in New York uh, with a more... Uh, Wall Street crowd, people involved in the banking and, and, and finance industries and, you know, listening to their concerns about what's going on in the trade relationship and so forth. And then uh, yesterday, last night, I was here in Seattle speaking to a university group at the University of Washington. And, you know, they're, they're much more concerned about the security arrangements, less so about the, the trade arrangements and so forth. So it's been eye-opening, just the perceptions here versus uh, Germany. And has anybody, I mean, I'm also interested, obviously, here in Brussels, we're very focused at the moment on the confirmation hearings for the next commission. Has anyone in either of the audiences you've met so far, you know, are they even aware of the fact that there's going to be a big change in the commission, that Ursula von der Leyen's coming in? Have they even heard of Ursula von der Leyen? I think most people have heard of her in uh, sort of New York, at least. I don't think that in the broader population, people have really heard of, about her. Right now, the uh, most questions I got were actually about Brexit and, and what the ramifications of Brexit will be for the EU, for Germany in particular, and you know what that means for the United States. There's, there's a huge amount of interest here in, in Brexit, which is another thing that, that surprised me a bit. Okay, let's take a, just a, a listen to some different perspectives on the, on the transatlantic relationship, because um, every EU capital is, is faced with the challenge, particularly of dealing with the Trump administration, of trying to find some, some common ground there and, and make that relationship work. Annabelle, what's the, the kind of Boris Johnson strategy for you know, dealing with Trump? Boris Johnson's approach is to hug Donald Trump closely. But that's not to say that he's not aware of how volatile the US president is. He's seen what's happened to other leaders, such as Emmanuel Macron and Theresa May. But he's definitely playing on the fact that Donald Trump likes him. And he very publicly endorsed him. But that doesn't mean he's going to turn his back on Europe. And and he knows that diplomatically on various issues, the UK is more closely aligned to Europe. So his approach to Donald Trump and obviously that the importance of getting that post-Brexit trade deal, I don't think is going to be at the expense 
of his diplomatic relationship with with Europe. It's not going to be a sort of unquestioning loving with Donald Trump. What about uh, Macron, Reem? I mean, you got a close-up version, I guess, or a close-up look at uh, how he deals with Trump, both at the G7 in Biarritz recently and at the UN General Assembly. What's the Macron approach? Macron really prides himself on, on maybe having cracked the secret to being the Trump whisperer. We saw that in full action at the G7 um, when he was able not only to keep Trump on side, but Trump tweeted multiple times what a great, wonderful, uh, fantastic time he had had with the G7 leaders and in, and in Biarritz. Um, but more broadly, whenever I've spoken uh, about this to French officials, uh, you know, they've been very matter of fact about the necessity of the relationship uh, with the US, uh, regardless of the current president's um, unpredictability. Of course, it makes their work uh, harder, but they're trying very hard to build as uh, cooperative and constructive relationship as as possible. Uh, and it seems to be working. You know, whenever you see Macron and Trump together, uh, Trump seems to kind of like the guy. And Macron seems to have figured out that the way for him to really have a good constructive relationship is to kind of bypass the administration and just do a mano a mano contact with Trump and talk one on one without any of the advisors around. Yeah, it certainly has worked at times. And then, if, but we have then seen Trump suddenly turn sour on Macron on Twitter, right? So we never know how far we are away from another one of those uh, outbursts. But Matt, you wrote recently about the, the German US relationship and how it seems to be cooling, really, and, and becoming more distant. Maybe you can tell us a bit more about that or, and also about your impression specifically on how Germany is viewed at the moment in the US. The headline of the article was the end of the German-American affair. And that surprised a lot of people over here during my visit, because I think that the, the impression in the US of Germany is much more positive than the, than the German impression of the US at the moment. And there's a lot of polling data at the moment that really shows just how troubled the relationship is from a German perspective, with 85% of Germans describing the relationship as either bad or very bad. And the, the Germans seem to have crossed a threshold here, in, in, in my view. There's been sort of a, a fundamental shift in the way they view the United States as a partner. And they're even starting to discuss now what they can do to create a situation where they're essentially equidistant between the U.S., China, and Russia going forward. And this is not something that's being discussed in sort of the bowels of uh, some think tank, but it's, it's being discussed even in, in the CDU. And, you know, I think this has to be somewhat worrying for transatlanticists going forward. And it will certainly have repercussions for the United States and Europe, for uh, for Germany and uh, especially for, for the security component. I just wanted to ask Matt how much of it's down to Merkel. Would a new leader change that dynamic, do you think? Well, that's an interesting question because most people say that it's down to Trump. And my, my thesis on this is that it's not really just Trump, that it's been going on for uh, a lot, a lot longer. And, you know, there are obviously a lot of kind of, you know, macro reasons for it, um, going back to the, to the fall of the wall and, you know, a lot of the things that have happened since then, obviously the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, the NSA scandal here, all of these things were, were very unpopular. But you also have the rise of China and, and the U.S. kind of repositioning itself there towards the Pacific. 
So there are a lot of uh, crosswinds here. I don't think it is down to one personality. I think that, you know, even if Merkel were to leave in the short term or if Trump isn't reelected, I don't think that things are going to fundamentally change. Okay, we'll just uh, push on with uh, some news from Brussels this week. It's confirmation time. And it's so we have these confirmation hearings for the future European commissioners. They're not quite like confirmation hearings in the US, I must say. Uh, You know, in some cases, these confirmation battles are over before they've even begun. We had uh, both the Romanian and the Hungarian nominee basically rejected last week initially and then formally rejected this week. And now Hungary and Romania are presenting new nominees. In the meantime, we're going forward with uh, hearings for the other nominees with specialist committees. And um, probably the big one so far is just wrapping up as we record, and that's with Sylvie Goulard, who's the French nominee. She's going to have a beefed-up role in charge of the single market if she gets through confirmation. And she has a couple of um, clouds hanging over her. Reem, maybe you could just start us off by reminding us what, what those are and why Emmanuel Macron decided to press ahead with her as the nominee despite those issues. Yeah, so if you'll recall, Goulard was actually um, appointed uh, defence minister in the first government that was formed after Macron was elected. And then she had to resign very quickly within a few weeks because... Uh, she was sort of accused of having been part of a sort of fake um, parliamentary jobs situation in her old party. Um, And that is still an ongoing investigation in France. The European Parliament uh, investigation has been wrapped up. She was uh, asked to pay up some money to sort of reimburse some money, and she did it, and that's been done. But the French investigation is still ongoing. And that has brought up a lot of questions uh, about why Macron would take such a uh, a risk on her by appointing her to also quite an important sort of portfolio and role within this new commission. And the answer, quite frankly, can be boiled down to two things, which is one, loyalty. Uh, Goulard was one of the very, very first high-profile people to support Macron. And second, according to the Macron, of course, camp, it's that she is a proven European, someone who has a lot of competence and someone who actually contributed to writing his European uh, program. And so they've stuck with her. And whenever we've asked them about about these issues that she's facing, they've said they have no real worries about it and they are confident she's going to get confirmed. Okay. Reem, Annabel, Matt, thanks very much. And now for our feature interview this week with the Prime Minister of Latvia, Christianis Karins, who spoke earlier this week to Politico's Bjarka Smith-Meyer. Now, among other things, Karins is a member of the European Council, the group of EU leaders that makes the big decisions and will be doing so again later this month when it comes to Brexit and a pile of other issues. Karins was actually born in the United States, in Delaware, to Latvian parents. He worked in business before switching to politics. His previous gigs include economy minister and member of the European Parliament. He's also been taking an increasingly prominent role within the European People's Party, the EPP. He was one of two EPP coordinators charged with negotiating who should get the top EU jobs after the European Parliament election. Now, the EPP is still the biggest force in EU politics, but it lost votes in May's election, and Karens has some interesting ideas about where the EPP should go from here. His message in a nutshell, go green or die. So let's dive in and hear him talking about that to Bjarke right now. 
politics always needs to change in, in order to survive because society is always in, in a state of change. But uh, there is still a quite visible demand and interest in, generally speaking, conservative politics. In Europe right now, there is, uh, you, you could say we're in, in a state of, of flux. I think it's all a result of the economic crisis that we had starting in 2008, 2009, led to a banking crisis, or the banking crisis leading to an economic crisis, in a sense has led to a political crisis. So people are are a little mm, disoriented and disillusioned also, sort of, well, if we went into this crisis, someone is responsible for that. Uh, so there was a lot of the, uh, you know, let's kick out the bums uh, kind of sentiment, which is understandable. But it seems that the pendulum uh, if it's swung quite far in one direction, is in, in some ways coming back towards some sort of center. But what won't change in politics is there will always be a struggle between kind of keeping things as they are or changing things. And then does keeping things as as they are mean no change or some moderate change? Or does changing things mean moderate change or radical change? And there was... A, a call for it seems radical change some years back, which seems to be tempering. People are still interested in change, a pod, positive change. But maybe many voters have realized that those politicians who promise rapid change in a very short amount of time that won't cost anyone any money—that's uh, actually an illusion. And the reality is that. Change takes time, it takes effort, and it almost always, or I could say always, costs money as well. Wouldn't that, in a way, go contrary to the movement that we've seen in France, for example? I mean, Macron came in, uh, completely broke up the establishment, and had come through with a firebrand type of politics that demanded immediate change. I mean, are you warning against his type of candidates in the future? Uh, no, actually, Macron, and this is the interesting thing about him, he has that sort of firebrand kind of feel to him, but he's very French and very European. His message was this project that we call the European Union, we need this. We need to strengthen this project. We don't need to listen to those who want to break it up. In a sense, he's, he's like the ultimate conservative. Right? He's, he's, a, he's a firebrand conservative. He doesn't consider himself that way, and I doubt the French voters do. But actually, that's one way to analyze him, because he's not saying that France should change its course. He's saying that France should get back in the driver's seat and try to take charge of this project that he and obviously many French voters strongly believe in. You, you guys are sort of the rear guard in many ways. I mean, do you not feel that to some extent the EPP faces a catalyst where it just has to change? Uh, yes, I, I think that the, the EPP has to change, but uh, I would say that the EPP is also in a in a process uh, of change. So, if we look at some of the uh, some of the big uh, issues of the day, uh, thinking uh, within the EPP is also evolving, uh, and the parties also change because within each member state, the political generation is always changing. So uh, here we have uh, in Sebastian Kurz a young, uh, very talented politician who is coming from his member state with a very strong mandate. And uh, I think it's politicians like him which will be those uh, who will be also influential in uh, helping the EPP to evolve. Kurz is an interesting example just because Kurz from his last government was very much dictated towards the far right and now he's moving towards, if it happens, a more green 
type of government. How can you draw that parallel with, for example, the more far-right positions which exist in the eastern side of the European Union? I mean, is the EPP still being pulled towards the far-right approach, or do you sense that there is a push in the opposite direction somehow? Not necessarily in the opposite direction, but what we see in many member states is that uh, EPP parties are adopting more and more green policies. Uh, I wouldn't call it left or right, uh, simply green, environmental friendly. And this is also something that I've noticed that uh, 10, 15 years ago, EPP parties were generally not so enthusiastic about embracing policy to directly tackle climate change. Always, uh, shall we say, not against, but a little pragmatic in the sense of let's be careful not to enact policy which would not be directly beneficial to the economy. And now there's a, a quite wide acceptance that actually we need to uh, not only do what we're doing, but we need to do it much more, and uh, this is a this is a market change. Uh, it's certainly within my within my own country, within my own party, uh, within our own government's policy. We have over the past year actually changed our government's approach to this entire issue, and this is not uncommon. Uh, so, politics uh, and and political parties uh, evolve uh, with the changing times. Those that don't evolve lose out completely, but. Uh, we can see that those that do evolve can manage to maintain voter support. And if Kurz, and this, this will be an interesting thing to observe, if Kurz uh, forms his next coalition, not with the right, but with, say, the Greens and, and the Liberals, uh, I think the numbers are there. Uh, it, it's a, a question of internal Austrian politics where I, I don't wish to really comment. Uh, one can really go way off the mark. But if that were to happen, it would be also, in a sense, a confirmation that the Austrian People's Party is sort of evolving by, if they form a coalition, this kind of coalition, their policy would be somewhat changed. And I think this is what, what we've seen over the past, shall we say, voting cycle, the past uh, couple of years, is that of the parties which have gotten stronger across Europe, uh, it is the Green Party. And the Green Party traditionally has been, it's sort of a, a peculiar thing that actually makes no inherent sense. If you're green, that is pro-environment, why would you be left in terms of other social policies? So usually green means left. But now what's starting to happen is that green doesn't mean left. Green can also be right. Green is green. So if, if we want to reduce CO2 emissions and foster economic growth based on low carbon emissions, uh, that can be a center-right policy. It doesn't have to be a center-left policy. But, I mean, EPP, of course, it's a big family. How do you kind of marry that approach with the approaches of Poland, for example, or of uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary? I mean, how, how does that work? I mean, th they are either the outliers that will be left behind or they don't necessarily belong in the future of the EPP. Which one is it? Uh, no, I, I think uh, it will be a third option that uh, over time these parties and their policies uh, will probably change. And if they don't change, I mean, if there is a divergence, well, then, then there's a divergence and eventually those parties won't, won't be in the same political family. But uh, that's a question of, which is simply open, open speculation. But we as a political family... 
And I, and I, I, I know the family quite well, having worked 10 years in the European Parliament. You, you really get a good sense of the, of the party political aspect of the EPP on, on a daily basis. Um, I have uh, seen a gradual but a definite movement and how the party group uh, has uh, evolved in its views and its argumentation as well. But you, but you do agree that there will be a time of reckoning for the EPP where they have to decide whether they go towards policies that are more green or then stay behind uh, in more conservative far-right country? Uh, I don't think that it's necessarily a day of reckoning for the EPP. Uh, it may eventually be a choice that one or another member party makes, but I don't think it'll be a choice of the EPP. The EPP is evolving whether one wants it to or not. It, it simply is evolving, and it's good that it's evolving because that means that it's a vibrant party. Things that don't evolve tend to be things that are dead. Languages that don't change are dead languages. Parties that don't evolve are in the history books, but parties that are evolving are evolving. The EPP is evolving. And if everyone doesn't agree with that direction, well, eventually, maybe some member would find some other family to be in. It's not very conceivable that the EPP as a group would all of a sudden come and say, burning coal is the future. No one would say that. Uh, but there are those who would say, getting away from burning coal costs money. And we have to look seriously at what we can do to help those member states that are very coal dependent become less coal dependent. Because it's very easy if you like in my country, we don't burn coal. We don't have any coal. So I could stand on a, on a high stool and, and thump my chest and say, look, everyone must be like me. Why burn coal? It's easy when you don't have to spend a single cent getting away from coal. But if your economy, say like in Poland, is over 80% coal dependent, that's a very different story. But uh, if we want in Europe, and I think we do, to move away from coal-based economies, we have to admit that costs money. And then who should be paying the money? Should it be, say, the Polish taxpayer alone? Should it be all of us as taxpayers? In what degree? Hmm, how to do it? And then it's a question of how much money and in what time frame can what be done? Should other countries go slower because of this? No. Uh, so... There are ways uh, to, new, to move forward as a political family, uh, inviting others to come along. But uh, the, the current uh, government in Poland is, of course, not a member of the EPP. Yeah. Could you imagine then seeing Latvia as one of the leaders of the new green revolution within the EPP then? Certainly, uh, we are arguing strongly that we need to move in this direction and quite quickly. And uh, we do it for two reasons. One... No one argues that it's good for the planet, it's good for the future, it's good for literally our children and grandchildren. But there's a secondary aspect, which I think is extremely important, is that I see this as a driver of future economic growth. So we can put it simply, someone, some region in the world will be the leader of technologies that everyone else will be buying and using. Europe is right now quite far ahead still in this regard. Uh, we can stay ahead and earn money and make sure that we have a solid base to our economy, or we can sit back, let the U.S., let China eventually completely take over. I don't think it's a good idea. I mean, it's obviously I set it up as a rhetorical situation. By adopting this policy and understanding that it is a clear model for economic development, 
you can actually attract people to it who are ideologically based. So um, I want things to be green and, and I'm not so interested in the economy. And you can get the traditional right, which is very interested in the economy, on board as well. And this is what I think we need to do. And within the EPP, this is the realization that I, that I sense is coming more and more, that it's not a either or. It is the way to make money in the future. Which direction are we going to point uh, you know, the, the next generation uh, to? Uh, certainly, I imagine that even in a country like Poland or Germany, uh, where there are coal mining communities, I'm guessing that many of those coal miners are telling their daughters and their sons maybe to get a different kind of qualification and you know, don't necessarily think that you'll always be a coal miner uh, just because dad was and granddad was. And I think the reason would be is that uh, people are not fools. People are, are quite knowledgeable and realize that the economy is changing. Jobs are changing. And one way that Europe can stay on top is to continue to develop more and new and better solutions how to get more energy out of less effort. And uh, it, it can be a fantastic driver of growth. And we should not see it as a threat. It is absolutely an economic opportunity. That was the Prime Minister of Latvia, Christianis Karin, speaking with Politico's Bjarka Smith-Meyer. And that's all we have time for on this episode. Just a brief note to let you know that on Monday you'll receive a branded episode of EU Confidential Goes Green in your podcast feed. But we'll be back, as usual, with our regular weekly edition next Thursday. Until then, please get in touch anytime via email at podcast at politico.eu. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Many thanks to producer Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.